Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. All right, ladies and gents, welcome to episode 53 of Stoke the Fire. We're going to jump into the podcast momentarily. Before we do, this is just a little introduction to say thank you to everybody who is already supporting us via the Patreon page, which we launched at the start of series two patreon.com forward slash stoke the fire um that is the place essentially where how would we break it down jesse if it was a pie chart 60 percent of the stoke the fire activity pretty much yeah. going forward would exist over there maybe 40 percent less so now out here in the you know the internet but patreon for those who already know is definitely the home of the majority of our content going forward and that's where we get a little bit deeper and take people kind of more behind the scenes of, of what we do isn't it yeah i'd say probably even more than 60 um it just fe- the vibe of it as well it just feels like community and it there's a lot going on in the comments that um i think are just moving this whole uh show or whatever you want to call it. it's kind of bigger than a podcast now because of that um and it's definitely been incredible and we're super grateful for everybody uh, and it's kind of taken a life of its own on, you know, people are becoming friends on there and it's just a whole, again, a whole community that's spawned out of this. Yeah. When we started the show, we did always say this is going to be more than a podcast. And then, uh, as I think you've already mentioned, it did kind of then just become a podcast. And so what we're really now trying to do is just do a podcast, which people get on YouTube and iTunes and Spotify, wherever you're listening to this from. And then patreon is where the actual vision for stoke the fire is happening and and a lot of that as you alluded to there has got more to do with the community that are driving it than with even ourselves because there's friendships as you say taking place there there's also discussions that we're not even always in on or privy to on the discord page especially and that is just such a wonderful and amazing thing that people are just on there connecting without anything to do with anything we're saying it's just taken on this whole other momentum and life of its own yeah and we do a a zoom hangout as well and on that zoom hangout it was mentioned that uh you know they just see it differently it's become something that um friendships are being bred somebody even was able to reach out and say i'm not okay and there's a whole discussion group around that on the discord so this has become what we thought it was going to be, and it's happened quite quickly. And I think all of that has to do with the Patreon page. It's been massive in the shift and the growth of this uh, show. Yeah, and in the interest of total transparency as well, it is a very valuable tool for us. Now we're a completely independent show um, to help us finance and fund the making of Stoke the Fire. There's maintenance fees to be paid. There's the producer's fees, which we now have to pay ourselves. Now we're no longer with a network. So by supporting us over there, you are quite literally enabling us to make this podcast. And we did a little update a few episodes ago where we shouted out the people who'd already signed up then. And because of that initial wave of subscribers, we were able 
to relaunch the podcast and you know get everything going with series two so there's a few more names we want to mention here of the latest subscribers and patreons um so let's give them some love now do you want to go first with the first name jesse and then we'll tag team it once again all right big thanks to nathan in quotes rex madrid thank you so much for your support nathan and thank you to sarah r as well all right ferlin key we appreciate you thank you for stoking the flames <laughs> and simon atkinson thank you ever so much to you my friend uh again tom miles appreciate you brother fire starter right here love it that, yeah so we have different uh names that are themed around different fire puns for each tier on patreon so you can check those out we've got up in smoke warm as toast uh campfire crew lots of uh yeah there's five different tiers in total or maybe warm as toast <laughs> yeah warm as toast is the one it even makes you feel cozy doesn't it hearing it but i think there's actually six tiers but if you go over there and, and have an investigate for yourself you'll be able to see uh thank you as well big ups to joseph ells for your support Matthew Gildermeyer. Killed it with that name. I would have messed that one up. Okay. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, big shout out to Tim Keeling as well. Uh, big love to Lorna Park. And we have Alison McNamara. Thank you ever so much to you for stoking the flames. Yes, Johnny Schumer. And Alan Davidson. Big up and mercy Boku to you. Yeah. Uh, big thanks to Justin Stephen. Uh, then we have the legendary one in words and one numerically. So uh, if ever there was one, this is the one, the legendary one. Thanks to the, thanks to the legendary one one for your support. Uh, and big thanks to Dick Tyner. And finally, last but never least, Michael or Michelle. No, it is Michael. It's Michael Hall or Hell. I know this name because I think he follows me on Instagram and I believe he was a Life in the Stocks patron. Uh, and I had the exact same problem last time trying to read out the name. So ever, ever so sorry, Michael Hell. Let's just say Hell. That's a cool sounding name. It's Michael Hell. But yeah, patreon.com forward slash stoke the fire. That is the place to go on there. You'll find bonus podcasts, an assorted array of audio and visual delights. And then there's all kinds of behind the scenes access that you just won't get anywhere else, not on social media, uh, not in the podcasts that go out publicly. They exist solely and exclusively on Patreon. Uh, things like the Zoom hangs, which Jesse mentioned. Uh, you know, there's the every now and again playlist that we share, both from our guests and also Jesse and myself. Uh, you can sit in on interviews. That's one of the things that we offer for one of the higher tiers. The Discord chat as well, which is uh, you know exclusively available to patrons of the show and jesse um just before we get into the podcast you're about to go on tour aren't you so how do you feel about dropping the occasional tour diary and putting that up on the patreon page oh yeah absolutely i've, I've actually started something i'm going to continue doing called the Dow of jesse where i just come on and talk about certain topics that uh, matter to me things that are on my mind currently so i can certainly uh, drop in little tour updates as well exclusively for our patreon uh, subscribers no problem Amazing. Well, once again, that address is patreon.com forward slash stoke the fire. If you love this show, if you get something positive out of it, if you want to show your support and allow us to continue making it, but also you want to become a part of the inner circle, the campfire crew, you know, get to make a whole new bunch of friends and see what goes on behind the scenes and just learn so much more about everything that goes into this show, uh, then that is the place to go. And we thank you in advance for your time and your support with that. Uh, but without further ado, let's jump into episode 53 
of Stoke the Fire with entrepreneur and executive and uh, just a genuinely brilliant mind, right, Jesse? Keeve Huffman joins us for this one. And what a great chat it is. Oh, yeah, I love it. It's a great talk, man. Very interesting. Let's do it, my friends. People can change anything they want to. And that means everything in the world. Show me any country and there'll be people in it. It's time to take the humanity back into the center of the ring and follow that for a time. You know, think on that. Without people, you're nothing. Without people, you're nothing. Stoke the fire. It's a hot one today, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, it is whilst we record. By the time this goes out, it might no longer be, or it might even be hotter. I mean, it can't get hotter than this. <laughs> uh, where, I, where I am here in uh, upstate New York, it's, it's rainy and chilly, which is kind of nice. So. Uh, that, for me, sounds like heaven right yeah. now, Jesse. As you can see from the shirt, if you're watching this, ladies and gentlemen, it is summertime here in the UK, and you know what that means. We all get sunburned and moan about the heat. That's how we like to do it in jolly old England. It's funny, man. The news at the moment is like just a fear-mongering kind of public health warning cycle of just stay hydrated, don't go outside. It's like, it's, it's you know, it's hot, but it's, it's not Africa hot. Wow, so the, the news is fear-mongering. I've never heard of that. That's crazy. What a weird, shocking turn of events. It's unusual, isn't it? Yes. Especially nowadays, especially yeah. nowadays. I, I can't really think why that is. But anyway, um, welcome to another edition of Stoke the Fire, ladies and gentlemen. This one is a very special one. It's a little bit different, I think, to anything we've done uh, to date. But it is going to incorporate, I think, themes, topics and discussions that we have delved into at various points throughout the, you know, the longevity of this show so far. And I mean, a man with many different strands to his bow and, and different chapters to his story as well. Um, so without further ado, let's welcome him onto the show. Keeve Huffman joins us, raconteur, businessman, um, and, and kind of a genius and a visionary in many ways. Welcome to the show, Keeve. Thank oh, wow. you for joining us. Well, thanks for the kind intro. Great to be here, guys. So Jesse, like we always do, I think we want a bit of background, don't we? A little bit of kind of story, journey to date contextualizing and, and you know um, information I think so we can begin the conversation there so Keeve before we get into the amazing work that you do could we get a little bit of background on yourself perhaps where you grew up um, growing up what your passions and interests were and maybe what led you into was it the music industry first before marketing and branding was music always kind of the guiding light for you yeah always music uh, my mother was a musician um she played the flute actually and um so i grew up around music all the time i just was always a huge music fan um growing up and then when i went away to uh college um i started getting into promoting concerts and and bands and i worked at college college radio station and um, started just throwing parties and, and, and having my friends' bands play. And um, also right around that time, I was always looking for ways to supplement my income getting through college. And uh, I, I had a good friend. Uh, I went to school at the University of Michigan in Michigan, and uh, I had a good buddy uh, from high school down in uh, Arizona. And he would send me paint cans full of, really nice 
green, you know, flower. And, uh, and so, yeah, so kind of early on, I was kind of bringing together um, all the worlds that kind of I'm working in now, which is sort of this combination of, of music and cannabis. Amazing. Can we ask you a quick favor before we go any further? I think the, um, the microphone you have on is perhaps either rubbing on your shirt or your beard. Um, <laughs> that might that. be annoying. I mean, is it annoying for you if you just don't have headphones and just go with the, the computer speaker and mic? We, we can certainly do that. Although I'm in a, I'm in a group office. So you guys tell me if it's okay. How is that? Oh yeah, no, the headphones is definitely the way to go. Yeah. This might be a little bit, and this might be a little bit annoying, mate. Sorry, but if you wouldn't mind kind of either perhaps holding it like that or just, you know, kind of sitting in a fairly stationary position. <laughs> we'll get there. Okay. So, no, how is that? Is that better? That's perfect. I think as long as it's not contacting the shirt or the chin. Yeah. Yeah, and um, hopefully that's not too unnatural. Um, I'll I'll get I'll get it figured out. You know, maybe I just need to kind of lean so that it's. Uh, yeah, that'll work. It's, it's you... dangling versus. Uh, there you holding. go. So there we go. I wanted to go back to the, what you said about the the can of uh, paint. So you're talking like one of those old school, like it looks like a can of paint. You unscrew it and you put the the flower in there and you screw it back up, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. That brings me back to uh, to yeah. yeah shampoo shaving cream like that's that's funny back when it was a, a dangerous game really to do that kind of stuff it was i mean it was it wasn't that dangerous in ann arbor michigan really to be honest because like literally at that time it was like a five dollar fine to get to get oh wow um caught smoking weed on on in in town ann arbor was always one of the more progressive kind of towns you know when it came to the midwest with respect to uh to, to, to weed and, and kind of any drugs. It was actually worse to get caught with, with drinking beer. Like they actually cracked down much harder on beer than, than weed, which I'm, I'm support, I'm a supporter of actually, you know, it's like much worse things tend to happen from, you know, people drinking, you know, copious amounts of alcohol versus smoking copious amounts of weed. But um, yeah, yeah. So it was like, that was kind of dating myself. That was, that was sort of the way that it used to happen back then. Yeah. I'm very aware of that. I was very much involved with that type of behavior as well. When I was younger, um, moving weight, as they'd say, uh, when I was younger, just to uh, afford my own uh, copious amounts of uh, <laughs> ingestion of, of the herb, uh, which I don't do much anymore. I'm very sort of, uh, I mean, we'll get to this later, but um, I just love the imagery when you said that, I just brought me back to, to a time, the nineties, especially it's a very interesting time for that. So Michigan, um, Ann Arbor, Michigan, I've actually DJed there. I've done some traveling around Michigan and, um, it is a fairly sort of progressive mind state that's going on in that area. I had no idea about the, um, the leniency though, back then, especially that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, they do have this thing called the hash bash. That's been a tradition there. And it kind of goes all the way back to the, um, the late 60s um is ann arbor where the stooges are from uh the stooges are from ypsilanti but they kind of claim to be which is right next door to um okay here's a here's a totally random kind of uh side note we, li we live um, for stuff like this lay it on us i i had a short stint uh uh 
fronting a, uh, a cover, a punk rock cover band. And we played a party once and we were the opening act for this group called Borax. And the lead singer of Borax was Iggy Pop's uh, like nephew. And so, um, so anyway, that's my, you know, he, they're, they're from that whole part of like, you know, Iggy and the Stooges, they're from that whole like Ypsilanti, Ann Arbor, suburban Detroit area. So, yeah. I love it. Iggy Pop, what a legend to this day. One of my, I think one of the last remaining real rock stars alive. Guy's a total legend. He's, he's been an inspiration to me. I mean, I used to actually live not too far from him. Um, I lived in the East Village uh, when I first moved out of uh, Michigan to, uh, and uh, he lived in this building called the Christodora House. It was the first kind of quote unquote luxury building uh, in Alphabet City in the Lower East Side. And I used to always think that I would eventually run into him. Unfortunately, I never did, but um uh, but nonetheless, I've, I've had the good fortune of seeing him uh, several times uh, live, and he's just an amazing performer, man. That guy, like the energy and just what he brings to the table. And I think he's also in the history of kind of, of rock and roll and just punk rock or just kind of in general, just a un very underrated songwriter um, you know, just penned some incredible incredible, you know, songs over the years. Now that we're talking about people like Iggy, um, I'm doing a, a little bit of research on you, uh, not a ton, because I like to sort of be a little ignorant when I go into these, but um, you met Joe Strummer as well, and Joe Strummer is a hero of mine. I actually have him tattooed on my forearm right here. Um, the Clash played a huge role in my shaping as a young punk and a lyricist, and one of the reasons I do anything I do is di directly linked to Joe Strummer. So tell me about that, because you, you were in a time frame in, a, in an area of the world during a sort of magical time, Alphabet City, East Village, still my favorite part of New York City, even though it's changed. So tell me about Joe Strummer. Tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, great story. Well, huge influence on me as well. I mean, the first concert I ever remember going to, um, I actually saw The Clash open for The Who in the silver dome in, in, uh, Detroit, suburban Detroit. But yeah, I was living in, I was living in alphabet city in the nineties. And, um, I was at a, a bar on seventh and B it was called the horseshoe bar. And, you know, it was definitely a locals bar and we were there. I went in, I was ha happened to have my brother-in-law and my sister were in town from Chicago. And my brother-in-law was a huge Clash fan as well, but you would never know it because he looked, he dressed, dressed really preppy and he kind of like had, like you would never like kind of peg him as like, as a Clash fan, but he was. So we're hanging out and in walks Joe Strummer by himself. And my, my brother-in-law is like, oh my God, Joe Strummer just walked in we got to go say hi to him. And I'm like, no, man, don't, don't go bug him. You know, it's like, cause I'm, you know, I've lived in New York. I mean, I was working in the music industry. So I was like, you don't bug, you know, you just leave people alone. And, and he's like, he's like, no, I'm going to go talk to Joe I'm like, all right, you go. You like, he's going to like, he's not going to want to talk to you prep boy, you know, who even, you know, it's like, he's, you know, you're going to, you're going to come back with your, your tail between your legs. So he goes off and I'm sitting there with my sister and like, 
couple minutes go by, a few more minutes go by, and then he, he's not come back. So I'm like, you know what, I got to go. Let me go check and make sure you're, 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 well, at the time they were just dating, but your, 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 your boyfriend is okay. So I go over and it's like, Hey, Keith, come meet my friend, Joe. And he had already bought him a beer and we're hanging out there. And, um, we ended up like hanging out with him for like well over an hour and just got some amazing stories out of him. You know, I mean, totally cringing, like, Oh, when's the clash getting back together type questions. And he was like, but he was like, totally cool. He's like, he's like, no, me, he's like me and Mick, me and Mick are mates. You know, it's the drummer. He's all fucked up on drugs. That's why, you know, we're, we're not together. And then he told me and this, this kind of dates back to a different era. Um, he, um, he was on tour with the Pogues at the time. And that's mm -hmm. why he was in town. Shane McGowan from the Pogues could not get into the country due to some, I think it was probably some drug related charges at the time. Couldn't get into the country. So Joe Strummer was filling in for the Pogues and they had just played this venue somewhere in LA. Um, and he's like, you know, they kept telling me, I guess the crowd was going nuts and they were like starting to rip up the seats and they kept coming up to me and saying, Hey, Joe, you gotta, you gotta calm down the crowd. And I just be, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then finally they came up to me and said, Joe, if you don't calm down the crowd, we're going to have to like stop the show and, and turn off the power. And he, uh, he looked down on the set list and saw the next song was London Calling. He said, fuck it all. And he, uh, they went through, they played London Calling. And this was pre-internet days, but I remember reading in Polestar Magazine the next week is like, this X venue in Los Angeles is no longer having rock shows due to the, due to the Pogue concert, you know? And um, so anyway, so that's my Joe Strummer story. And, you know, uh, yeah. I love that it's he, tied into the Pogues. I, love the pogue i actually have the t-shirt from that tour where it's the pogues with joe strummer on there with the irish flag i'm huge pogues fan as well i got chills all over my legs from that that story that's awesome oh i love yeah, it well i spared because because we actually have a, a brit on the spot podcast i i spared my really bad like uh, joe strummer impersonation to, to give you the full flavor <laughs> usually when i tell that story uh I, I i try to do my uh my joe impersonation as well but um but yeah so i look i've been very fortunate i mean i worked in the music industry for 15 years in new york city in a pretty interesting time and what was your um, first gig in the industry how did you how did you break in <laughs> so my very first gig in the industry is i worked as what was called an art coordinator for Columbia House. I don't know if you remember, I don't know if you had this, Matt, in the, in the UK, I but I know Jesse knows what Columbia House is. And uh, basically Columbia House was like a mail order, um, you know, record club, you know, it was like how you got like, and it's how in the nineties, everyone kind of like jacked up their CD collections really quickly. Cause you got like 12 for the price of one and people would sign up their dogs and their neighbors and, you know, and uh, yeah, we never had that here. I've heard people talk about this. We, we, we would get free CDs in magazines, but there was never this kind of mail order approach because they worked out to be super cheap, didn't they? Yeah, very cheap. It was the fastest way to really increase your collection at the time. And so as the art coordinator, basically what that meant is I had to go to all the publicists at all the labels and get all the photos and the artwork and anything that we were going to put into our magazines. 
So what was great about that is like, it was a horrible job in that it like paid nothing. You know, I made no money, but the publicists were the ones that had all the tickets to all the shows. Right. And so I basically got to go to every show that I ever wanted to go to. And that made more than made up. Like, so my whole social life was paid for. Right. Because I was just going to, I was going to like four or five shows a week. You know, I was just obsessed with just seeing like everything that was coming through and in New York, everything came through New York. So it was amazing. And, uh, which shows yeah. from that time stand out as particularly special? I'm sure there was hundreds, but any really shine above the rest? Well, let's see. I mean, I was really fortunate. I mean, I got to see, uh, I got to see Nirvana. Um, I got to see uh, Guns N' Roses. Um, I got to see the very first Foo Fighter show ever. Wow. at tramps they played at tramps i don't know if you ever remember but there was this like venue called tramps that was like it's a horrible venue because it was like basically had the big poles in the middle of it with so there were all these bad sight lines but there were some incredible shows that would come through there and i remember it was um it was mike watt open for them and eddie vetter actually was playing with Mike Watt, and then it was the first ever Foo Fighter show in New York. Their, their record hadn't even come out, and I was like, "Wow, these guys are gonna be these guys have songs." You know, it was like it was apparent, like from the first that like that those guys had songs. I'm like, these guys are gonna be big. So that was that was memorable. Um, seeing Iggy at he play he was playing at a really small place um, called the Continental Club, and he was doing a pre a pre-show tour um i got to see him uh a bunch of beastie boy shows were incredible um back in that era uh rancid uh all right stop it, showing off <laughs> i mean so many i mean it was all all like my favorite bands ever as well and as jesse mentioned that's like probably the last golden time i mean the early 2000s in new york i think were were pretty brilliant as well with bands like the yeah yeah yeah's and the strokes that was kind of the, the tail end of the rock you know, golden age maybe in that city, but the night 90s... I worked. I worked the first Strokes record um, as uh, the head. Of, I was the head of new media at RCA Records when the first Strokes record. They actually recorded their first album on the block that I lived on. I lived on Second Street between A and B, and they they recorded that first album um, on that block. So um, yeah, yeah, it was a uh, that was. It was it was a pretty amazing time, man. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I, I don't think I could live in New York City ever again. But like living there, like during my in my twenties in the, in that era, it was it was amazing. Well, there was a magic there, really, because you know I mean, that's the time that I sort of grew up and played shows. And I lived in Providence, Rhode Island, but um, New York City was the mecca, so I would go there for shows. My bands would play shows, but I predominantly was just going there to be around that energy because it was nothing like it. But uh, yeah, New York City now, very different. And that's one of the reasons why I escaped and moved up where I am in Woodstock. Uh, just couldn't do it anymore. And uh, a where, lot are of people, where are you living now? I'm in, I'm in LA now. Um, I'm in an area called Playa Vista. And yeah, I'm in a different you know, era of my life. I've got a, I've got a 13-year-old son. And um, I decided, yeah, so basically what ended up happening is I... I ended up becoming, I'm always been interested in sort of what's next, 
that's always sort of my thing in business. And so I got involved on the, on the digital side. And so when I took over the new media department, you know, basically I created the new media department at RCA Records. And then from there, I kind of moved up the ranks pretty quickly. Um, and I was running at the end, the, uh, the digital business for BMG and Sony BMG for North America. And um, then things got really like, it was, it was a really amazing run. And then, um, and then there became so much money involved that all of the like top execs decided, oh, we can't just let this guy continue to just do what he's doing. Now we have to get involved. And then it became not fun anymore. And I decided to escape the music industry and to escape um, New York kind of at the same time. And that was like at the end of like 2005 now. And because I could see the direction, man, I knew the industry was. That's I, when I was the like, industry began to plummet, isn't it? That is when sales uh, began to finally yeah, was, drop. Well, to me, it was just so obvious. It was like, you know, because so really the beginning, the end is, so I was at BMG and we merged with Sony and Sony's whole f corporate philosophy at that time around digital was like, how do we put the genie back in the bottle? Right. It's like, they were, they were about putting copy protection on the CDs and about suing, you know, the customers. And it was just like, I was like, yeah, I can't, I can't be part of this because you know what, this genie's not going back in the bottle. I mean, at the end of the day, like, you know, people are, so my, my perspective was like, look, this is the greatest opportunity in the history of recorded music. Look at all this pent up demand that we're not supporting. We need to figure out which business models to support and how to support the technology because exponentially the opportunity is going to be larger than it's ever been. You know, that wasn't a very popular opinion to have back in 2004, 2005. Um, and so as a result, I left the industry because I just didn't want to bang my head against the wall anymore and moved to LA and kind of focused more on kind of doing earlier stage startup type stuff at the intersection of sort of media and technology. And, uh, and then I eventually got into cannabis, which is what I've been doing for the last seven years now and building cannabis brands. So to me, it sounds like you were ahead of the curve. You started to work on something that blew up essentially and instead of them elevating you, they were sort of just taking it away from you. It sounds like that's kind of what happened to you. Is that, is that the case? Do you feel? Well, I mean, look, I never, you know, look at the end of the day, when you work for a big company, you don't, there's, you know, you don't really own, you don't really have any control over anything. You're just a, you're just a, an employee. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, what, what ended up happening? So Bertelsmann was the owner of BMG and they basically, their whole philosophy was like, as long as you're making your numbers, we're going to continue to support you and just you let us know what you need. And so they allowed me free reign to go out and do whatever I wanted, which was pretty amazing, especially, you know, I was a relatively young executive at the time. Um, but, you know, we grew that business from under, it was under a million when I took it over. And then by the time we merged with Sony, it was like 125 million in revenue. You yeah, know? I remember reading that about you. And that's, that's crazy numbers. How long? How long? What was the time frame? Like two years. That's insane. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it was a different era, right? It was like, like, I mean, we were making a lot of money off like ringtones then. Remember that? Like people were like, like, oh, I'll actually pay four dollars for a snippet of a song to be my ringtone 
you know, I mean, it was a weird, crazy era where we were making money off all different kinds of ways, but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was an interesting time. I mean, I, I could just see that things were going to get really ugly before they got better. And sure enough, you know, that's what ended up happening. And I mean, it kind of had to, the industry kind of had to implode in a way. And now we're just now starting to see like the sort of, you know, and it's built that built back up in different ways, right? So you've got your digital, like it's very much around the subscription services, and there's enough of a critical mass there where that's built up. But also everything really got repositioned into the live music scene, right? Like that's how the, the money was being made, right? It was because people weren't buying shiny plastic discs anymore. Um Although they actually did, it was interesting, and you you probably remember this, Jesse, is like, you know, they actually would buy them at shows, you know, like, you know, like that was a way a lot of bands used to supplement, you know, their incomes. It was like merch and, and, and CDs, right, at selling yeah. at the show. Yeah, and as long as you, the big, the big thing was like signing them. So it was CDs, and now it's vinyl. Vinyl's now become a staple. Like, we'll bring vinyl on tour and sign the vinyl, and that sells. So it's just a matter of like, like you said, just moving with the times and what works, what doesn't, you know, I think t-shirts as well, like t-shirts are a huge part of a touring band's income, but you have to be on tour to sell the t-shirt. So it goes hand in hand, but yeah, it's completely changed. Yeah. Record sales are sort of a joke these days, Yeah, but, but our diehard fans will still buy the physical. They will. Yeah. Well, and I remember like that was the beginning of what they called the 360 deals. Oh God. <laughs> never signed one never signed one oh. kudos to you um, can you break down what one of those is i'm going to quickly plug my laptop in as well yeah well so basically when when cd sales started going down the record companies were like well if we're not making money there then we need to start making money in any other way that we can so we're going to take a 360 degree approach to taking money from every revenue stream that the band creates and take a piece of that. And the, and look on their side of it, it's like, well, we are bankrolling the recordings and these different kinds of things. But um, from what I could see of most of those 360 deals, they were pretty much of an overreach, you know, and I think uh, it was like a desperate cry from a wounded animal. <laughs> Just trying to yeah. think what to do next. I remember reading about that and then actually being approached to sign one of those. And, and collectively me and all of my musician friends were like, what? Hell no. And I'm so grateful we never signed one, but you're right. The, the, in their defense, they they were just trying to figure out what to do next. You know, and it was kind of like, we're going to help promote this. So we're taking money from you, but it's more money that, you know, it's taking uh, how's the phrase go? It's either you don't make a lot of money or you make a lot of money and we take some of it. That was kind of the approach to it. Yeah, it was a look, it was a painful transition. And I think, look, I think the bands that really survived and thrived were the ones that had had a great like live music, you know, and touring kind of structure to them. And also the ones that didn't sign 360 deals. Yeah. So yeah. So um Obviously, it's kind of a no-brainer how um, weed and marijuana could come into play here because being a musician, it's everywhere. Um, it's something that has been part of the landscape culturally in music uh, since as far back as, you know, the 20s, 30s. How did that transition happen? At what point were you like, 
not only just for the business side of it, but like, tell me more about why marijuana aside from the business end of it? Like, what, was there any other reason for it? Well, I mean, it, so what ended up happening, so my, the first company that I created was a media company that was focused on creating um, video content for the cannabis industry, broadcast quality content. And it was at that time, there really wasn't an outlet for that. I mean, most of the content was like stoner dudes ripping bong bong hits on youtube right and like talking you know it was like very like stereotypical and so we started to bring a, a, a different approach to it and as a result what it would end up happening is we got a lot of people come to us and say hey can you help us with our brands and so we started to work on a lot of different different brands created in-house agency and i just saw that brands were really being created in a way that really wasn't authentic. It didn't come from an authentic place because what it came from was like, came from like, Hey, we've got, we've got this great, we've got this fireweed or we've got this whatever. And now we need to put a label on it. Right. We need a logo. And then, and, and now we've got a brand and they weren't really coming at it from the angle of like, well, who's, who's like a tribe of people that we want to like super serve and, and delight with cannabis products. And so we ended up having an opportunity where um, a partner of ours, uh, who's a big agent out there came in and said, look, I think there's a big opportunity. Um, no, no one, no one, everyone is going after the rap audience and no one's going after the metal audience. And there, there should like, why isn't there a cannabis brand like for metal fans? And so, and he's like, I can get you access to like festivals and concerts. Let's see what we can come up with. And that really was sort of the light bulb that went off. Where it was like, you know what? Like even just culturally, it's like, hey, you know what? There's no go-to brand for a lot of a lot of different like groups of people, right? Because the cannabis brands haven't been created with that in mind. And so just bringing together my music background, a lot, I mean, it just all kind of came full circle and it was like, okay, well, wait a minute. Somebody's going to like basically bring cannabis brands that authentically connect to different audiences and it might as well be me. And so, yeah, that's kind of how it all came together. It's uh, reminiscent of like Jägermeister, how that became sort of like a metal thing, you know, cause it was marketed towards that type of audience and, was a reality that's interesting because i never even thought about that of course it's been a hip-hop thing of course it has been but metal people there's tons of weed in metal are you kidding me like not even just the bands but the people that work for the bands our crews you know like it's everywhere how is the how's that not been tapped into before you're right that's that's interesting yeah well it's just sort of a you know and also because look, there's these, there's a lot of challenges just around cannabis in general, because it's still federally illegal, right? So everything is very state by state, and you know what you can do. So creating sort of national brands with national marketing campaigns, don't really exist yet in this industry. And so as a result, the focus has just been on like, how do I get on shelves in my local community? And by focusing that, then you really aren't focusing on the long play, which is like, well, what does this brand mean to anyone? And does it really connect? 
And so from day one, we were like, look, we're going to create something. The very first year that we created, and it's called Heavy Grass, is the brand. We actually went on tour with uh, a bunch of different, uh, we went, we did, we did Carolina Rebellion. We did Rock on the Range. We did like a whole bunch of these shows. And we had the longest lines out of anyone at any of the booths because we had a big pot leaf on the top, right? And people are like, what is going on here? You know, they had never, you know, cause those, as you know, still not even really legal and it's not legal in Carolina. And, um, uh, you know, you know, where Ohio, is cannabis legal now as of today in the U S it's in like half the States now. So like, you know, you pretty much go it's well for recreational about half. And then I think it's almost all States now have some form of medically legal, um, programs, but this was like four years ago when we first started heavy grass, it was like, this was new and people would come up and they would line up. Part of it was curiosity, but a lot of it was like, oh my God, I've been waiting for this. Finally, there's a weed brand that speaks to me. That's, that's like, and that's when like, look, I knew as soon as we did that, I'm like, okay, we're onto something here. Right. Cause people like, it's like, I learned that it's funny. Like I was at, when I was at Columbia house going way back that we started a Latin music club. It was the first time that anyone had ever on a national level promoted Latin music out to, to this audience. It was a completely underserved audience. We didn't know what we were doing, but you know what? We used to get these letters of like, you know what? I have been waiting for this, right? Someone to actually market to me the music that I want. And so I kind of like, that's the, like finding these opportunities to kind of authentically connect to underserved audiences to me is like, that's kind of what I do. The, the unfortunate reality of taking that approach is that oftentimes it means you're early and sometimes being early isn't always, it means sometimes you have to wait it out quite a bit and hopefully you survive to when the, you know, things actually kind of work themselves out for a, for a payoff, which honestly, without federal legalization, there's only so far you can really go with cannabis brands right now, because to try to scale state by state, it's just, it doesn't really make sense, you know, from a, cause you really have to literally go and find supply chain partners that are unique to every single state. Cause there's no interstate commerce. Right. So it's, it's not a super practical thing, but I'm a big believer that it's a matter of, of if not when. And so I'm just playing the long game right now, because look, I know when things open up, then if we're positioned as the metal weed brand, then to your point, like, so Jesse, I am, I'm also like a data geek. So there are, um, there are actually 78 million hard rock, you know, this is put, bringing in hard rock, but hard rock and heavy metal music fans in the U S alone. So that's 78 million people. And then 25% of those people self-identify as cannabis consumers, which I actually think is probably low, <laughs> but say, yeah, not everyone's going to admit that, but yeah, that's probably a low number. Yeah. But, but even still that's close to 20 million people that no one is going after right now. Right. right. And so to instantly open that up, that's kind of the, that's where, you know, we're looking at, you know, when you look at the business side, but also it's just looking at like, 
it's not rocket science to your point of like, okay, wait a minute, go to any, you go to any metal show. There's a lot of like, a lot of people smoking weed, you know, all, all around. It's like, okay, it just makes sense that they should have a brand, right? That speaks to them. Are you unable to ship product across state lines at the moment then? Is that yeah, illegal? Yeah, it's illegal. Um, you have to, everything has to be self-contained within, you know, the state. And that's what makes it challenging. You know, how do you create a brand and you can't have like consistency, you know, um, from state to state. Um, You're ahead of us though. It's still illegal everywhere in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? So us is most likely going to be the last domino to fall in North America because, um, we actually just promoted, uh, down in Mexico. We did the first ever cannabis, um, brand activation at a festival called um, Machaca Festival in, in Monterey. And they had three stages and we were there because we've got an affiliation with Slipknot. So Slipknot was one of the headliners on the rock stage. Well, they were the headliner on the rock stage. Um, and Mexico, it's interesting. They're so their their equivalent of like the Supreme Court has basically said that it's legal and they've directed their legislative branch to put the regulations in place for it to be able to be sold legally and they keep missing the deadlines. So it's kind of a really weird like gray area down there. It's where it's like, it's not illegal, but it's not legal. There's no legal way to actually sell it, but there's a lot of people in Mexico smoking weed. So there's a lot going on down there. But uh, it's interesting. I think Mexico is going to go legal before the U.S. And it's, so it's like, here we are. Like, who would have ever thought 67% of all Americans believe that, that cannabis should be fully legal recreational? I think 89% medical. And, you know, it's like not to devolve into a political discussion, but, you know, you know our, our government's obviously pretty broken here that they don't listen to the will of the people, right? It's like, you know, you can't get 67% of Americans agree on anything and we still can't get something like passed. That's just kind of common sense, but. Well, you mentioned at the top of the, of the podcast here about alcohol and that's always frustrated and annoyed me when you look at tobacco and alcohol and the accessibility that we have to that and to a younger generation that's even younger than the age that you're supposed to be to purchase those things. They're everywhere. Yet marijuana, which is a proven medicine that helps people, you know, that you don't get violent on, you don't you know all the crime that is attached to the alcohol, all these negative things that are freely legal to us. And yet marijuana is still illegal in, in a lot of places. And it just blows my mind on a regular basis. But, you know, like you said, not to devolve into a political discussion, but there's some real depth there on why it's taken so long to get this beautiful medicinal plant to the place where it should just be free for everybody. It's a plant. You put a seed in the ground and it grows. Like, how is that illegal? It just blows my mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's some really good organizations out there. One of them that we've done a little bit of work with called The Last Prisoner Project. And their whole, their whole goal is to... Um, you know, try to get all of the people that are in jail right now for this plant, you know, for, and because it's, it's just on top of everything, the fact that they were ever in jail is horrible enough, but the fact that they're still in jail when there's people like myself out there legal, you know, we're out there creating a legal industry 
around this. And yet there's still people in jail to this day, you know, for, you know, a, a plant that's never caused a single death. And I don't know, I've been to a lot of cannabis events. I don't think I've ever seen a fight. <laughs> you know? um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, look, I, I, I'm a, I really believe that it's still, it's, it's coming, it's gonna, it's gonna change. Um, but I don't know when, um, you know, there, it certainly hasn't been made a, a priority by any of the administrations that have been in. So, you know, yeah, because I, it's, it's natural medicine and anything that's naturally medicinal for you is a, is a threat to the money that can be made um, through the pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to backpedal real quick to what you just talked about there, because I think it's a very important topic. The fact that people are sitting in prisons for having possession of marijuana, even small amounts of marijuana. In fact, a friend of mine um, did a three year sentence for having an ounce. And because he had it in different bags, because he had bought a couple of bags to create an ounce, they charged him for selling, even though he was not selling. He lost three years of his life. Uh, his marriage broke up. He didn't get to see his kid get become a kid. He had literally had a baby when all this happened um, because he was using it for, for his mind, for medicinal purposes. There's thousands, if not tens of thousands of people who have similar stories across this country. And that's a huge thing. So to have an organization that's actively working towards that, I think that's super important and something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Cause that's, that's sad really on many levels. It really is. And, you know, look, your friend is, um, I would take it. That was, that was in a Northeastern or Midwestern state yeah. that that happened. You know, you go down South and it's, I mean, there's people in jail that literally have life sentences, you know, or like 30 year sentences because it's the three strikes and you're out. Right. So it's like, they got caught that third time with like possession you know, and it's crazy. And it's, and unfortunately, it's also, um, it's disproportionately against people of color, you know, yes. like that, that really are in for, you know, if you look at the percentages of, of, of consumers, it's exactly the same, the exact percentage, same percentage of consumers across almost all ethnicities, you know, in this country, like consume, you know, all skin colors. Um, but if you look at who's actually in prison, it's just like, I think it's something like, I don't know, it's exponentially more right of blacks and Latinos that so the are guy I was talking about is, is a black gentleman. That's yeah, that's accurate. And a lot of the people that I do know that have been through the prison system are people of color absolutely yeah uh, sad really but uh, it's great to hear organizations are out there actively helping those people that's beautiful can we widen the discussion to touch on things like lsd mdma mushrooms all of those kind of drugs what's your thoughts on them do you have any interest or you know opinions on, on the medicinal power of of psychedelics and do you think absolutely. drugs like that will ever eventually become you know, legal for medical purposes, because obviously they all started as medicine, really, didn't they? MDMA, LSD, these all began life in, you know, labs being developed to treat mental health issues. And then I guess with LSD in the 60s and MDMA ecstasy in the 90s, the kind of hippie and rave cultures 
swallowed them up and then it became you know a negative thing in the public eye this is an evil drug that's going to rot your brain and you know then the kind of research was shelved and you know all work stopped trying to make these things you know available for people to help with mental health and depression and but that's where their lives began as you know substances of healing and uh, you know medicinal qualities do you think they'll ever reach a legal state I do. Um, I definitely think, well, look, we're already getting pretty far along with, um, with psychedelic mushrooms. Um, I think it's currently legal in Oregon. Um, and interestingly enough, there's actually been more, more research on psychedelics medically than there has been on, on cannabis because of the way that the cannabis laws were set up. Like it was really hard to do cannabis research in this country. Um, most of the top cannabis research coincidentally um, to date has been done in Israel. Um, they're far, far away um, uh, advanced. But on the, on the, on the uh, psychedelic side, I, I see it as being a purely medical play. Like I don't see it going recreational at all, but I do see, look, there's again, like if you just look at the, if you just look at the studies and the research that has been done, there, there are, you know, very clear medicinal benefits for a variety of different ailments, right? Um, that people, um, you know, that, that have been discovered. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a believer. Um, I, I tend to personally, like I'm, I gravitate towards the more natural. So like, I'm more like, I'm more of a proponent of the, of the mushrooms than I am of anything that's more chemically, kind of created um, like the MDMA or the, um, or the uh, LSD, but not to say that those don't also um, have, have some benefits. Um, so I do think that we'll start to see, there's a lot of money starting to go into a lot of these companies and, you know, a lot of them focused on really good causes too, because it's really helps a lot with some people with some serious you know, PTSD and, 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 and serious mental ailments. Um, it really helps unlock um, some things for them. And so I do believe that it's going to go uh, that this is, well, I think, you know, some things need to happen with cannabis first, you know, there's always stages and steps that, that need to happen. Um, but, you know, I, I, there's also, you know, a lot of, I don't know if it'll ever get to this point, but you know, there's a lot of interesting things going on around the whole microdosing, you know, um, you know, sort of development as well, and um, and the ability, you know, just sort of just in general, like sort of like this biohacking, like ways to sort of optimize performance and things where it's it's not taking these medicines in ways that you kind of like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to party, you know, it's more of like, I'm going to, I'm going to use this to help enhance my life for X, any, any number of reasons. So I see your, your nod in your head there, Jesse. So oh, just... severely in my neck, I'm headbanging over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm a strong proponent of it. It's changed my entire life. Um, I think it's incredible. It's helped me be more creative. It's helped me be more present. Um, yeah, I'm a huge proponent of microdosing because to me, like at a certain age, I just I don't really like to party much anymore. I'm pretty like I like to stay in control. 
Um, and I've had issues with depression and anxiety. You know, when I was younger, I used to have suicidal thoughts. Like I was a mess and microdosing changed my life. And part of that too is, is edibles. Like I don't smoke much anymore. I don't smoke anything really because of my voice. I had surgery in 2018 and I've been very careful about it, but um, edible marijuana, when I know what I'm getting and how much dosage I'm getting, which is important for me. So I don't go too far in any direction. All that stuff has completely helped me. And I am yeah, a firm believer in that stuff. And I love that you know your shit. I love that you're not just doing this one thing. You've seen the big picture. And it's not just about getting high and partying. There's, there's medicinal qualities here that are valid for all of these things. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, look, I think we're, we kind of turned a corner um, with a lot of things. Cause like growing up and you'll, you'll remember this, especially in this country, Jesse is like, you know, the whole, like, just say no. And oh, yeah. like the mothers against drunk driving. And my mother was actually in mothers against drunk driving. Right. So um it's kind of funny, like, what was this, like, six, seven years ago, seven years ago, when I told her that I was getting into cannabis, I was nervous to tell her, right, here I am, like, a grown man, right, but it's, like, you know, and, and the first thing she said to me was, like, well, maybe you can help me, because she was having, she was on so many pharmaceuticals for her arthritis, her lupus, she's got, she had chronic pain from shingles, she had all these issues. And I think there's been this mind shift with the older generation where they've started to see the medical benefits of, of the plant. And that's really helped. That's why, you know, you look at like 67% of, of Americans believe that it should be fully like 89%. Like there's very few Americans at this point in time that don't see some level of benefit, you know, medicinally um, with this plant. And I think that's really the older generation kind of like finally coming around because they're saying, Oh my God, this works for me. Like we got her off like half of her meds, you know, which was incredible. It's like, Hey, a plant plant versus like chemical, you know, it's not hard to like figure out what's better for you as an older person, right. To your, your system. And you go down that chemical route and one pill has to take the place of another pill. And you just, it's a constant roller coaster of trying to figure out dosages and the side effects from one pill is you need to take another pill for that. It, it's insane to me uh, what the pharmaceutical companies have done to human beings and continue to do to this day. Um, but, you know, I have a, a very um, vivid memory of my grandmother going through chemo and it was a really sad, dark time. And the few times where she had relief come to find out was when my aunts would uh, smoke her up with weed and she, her personality would come through, her nausea would go away. She would eat something she would come back to life and have these great things that created memories because of marijuana. And this is a long time ago uh, that that happened, but that's the type of thing that people are seeing. And I like that you said that the older generation, there's this stigma that's starting to finally go away where, you know, you look at the generation that had reefer madness, you look at the generation that had all this propaganda through the eighties about, you know, how marijuana makes you a pile of mush on the couch when in fact, a ton of incredibly creative things have been done under the influence of marijuana, including music and art and acting and, you know, book writing and all these things. It's just insane to me how well the propaganda worked and it's finally starting to, to lose its grip on an older generation that sees the benefits of it for various reasons. And yeah, the pharmaceutical companies have a lot to do with that. And that's a whole can of worms that, uh, 
we don't have to devolve into, but yeah, I think you hit it, the nail on the head right there. The older generation is finally starting to see the benefits medically. I got arrested when I was 16 years old for cannabis possession. Um, and it was literally just an empty bag. It was the seeds inside. And my grandma from that day forward basically disowned me and didn't want to know me for the rest of her life. And it was a real shame. My mum threw me out of the house, like, because that family was so brought up on that exact propaganda of he's on drugs, he's on drugs. And yeah, up until my grand literally died, there was never any peace made between us because she just thought I was like, you know, the, the wild child that had gone off the rails. And, you know, it's such a shame. But as you say now, obviously she didn't live long enough to see that shift, but it is great to see it happening because it's a plant. I don't smoke weed and haven't done for many years, but yeah, the perception of it definitely needs to change. And, and, you know, obviously finally is, and that's awesome to see. Wow. I didn't know that about you. That's crazy, dude. Yeah. He's on drugs. <laughs> you have to just laugh. Cause it's like, okay, if that is going to, you know, it's that stigma and that kind of the way society can just reduce a person to, you know, a profile because of one detail about them. And as you say, it's these institutions that spin that narrative and they've done a great job of, you know, criminalizing people who use these things. But it's changing. Yeah. Well, it's crazy, man. And it's like to think, honestly, what it went back to is it was William, William Randolph Hearst. Um, he was the first one to bring, he was the one that coined marijuana because it was the, the evil Mexican that came up from Mexico and kind of really used his his media um, empire to demonize this weed um, to demonize minorities mexicans and he had a very ulterior motive because he had a lot of investments into lumber companies and textile companies hemp hemp was a massive disruptor to the industries that he had heavy investments into. And so it was in his best interest to demonize this. And it was so successful that when it came up for a vote to um, make first make cannabis federally illegal, that when Congress came to the vote, it was just so accepted that this was the truth that they didn't even call a single medical expert up onto the stage, you know, to testify on like, well, tell us actually the medical, you know, perspective of this plant. They just boom. And to this day, and then, and then, and then Nixon totally politicized it because during the Vietnam war, he's like, this is the way to put the hippies and the, and the blacks in, into, into jails and get them out of my hair. It's like, let's, Let's just really like ramp up this war on drugs. And, you know, so it's just been kind of, you know, all of this has uh, happened and that amount of time and that amount of propaganda gets pumped through. Uh, it's, it's hard to overcome those, that, that level and depth of stigmas, right? Um, and we are finally getting past it. I mean, the stigmas are still there to a certain extent, um, but honestly, uh, it's really only about one in three where there's still a stigma, which is pretty incredible because if you look at like, if you look at these like holes of uh, over time, it's over the last like, you know, like five to seven years, there's been this exponential jump, you know, 
where like, you know, where there's been this acceptance. And I think that has been getting back to my earlier point, you know, this, these, because there's been so many of these um, medicinal benefits, you know, it also helps when you've got mainstream media. What was that guy, uh, Sanjay Gupta did that whole thing on the, the girl who did Charlotte's web, right. For the epileptic seizures. And, you know, all this stuff helps the people go, Oh my God, look at this. You know, it's like, I don't know if you've seen that there's videos that are out there where it's like these guys that are just uncontrollably shaking. And then they literally smoke. And within like, like less than a minute, the shaking goes away. They can have conversations, you know, it's like, Oh, how is this? How can we demonize this? Look at, look at what this is doing for this person. It's like, so finally we're, we've been making, you know, developments and it's, uh, it's encouraging, but you know, still to this day, it's federally illegal in this country. So just goes to show you the power of money and influence and propaganda. It's, it's crazy to think that, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's moments like that where you see the proof right in front of your face. You can't deny it someone who has an epileptic seizure and can't stop shaking. And then the medicine hits literally in minutes. There's a famous video of an older gentleman where that happened. And I remember seeing that like reposting. I think it was back in the, when I was on Facebook all the time, but yeah, just getting that out there just so people can see the the truth really. Yeah. So as we approach the end, let's talk a little bit about where you're at now and, and anything you can perhaps you know, mention in regards to the future going forward. So how do you link up with Clown? Because he's a real character, that guy. Jesse just toured with Slipknot about six months ago all over the US. So, um, you know, he knows that camp well. But yeah, um, Slipknot, Clown, Heavy Grass, how do these partnerships begin? So, you know, with Heavy Grass, when we started, like, three, four years ago, we first started off by working with a lot of like more like uh, sort of the baby bands out there. We just get them care packages with like, you know, um, with, with flour, with t-shirts and, and it just started to help. Like, so we kind of really at a grassroots level, like sort of seeded the brand and we start and we were constantly, we were, we've, we've, we've activated it aftershock every year. We go and do a lot of ticket giveaways here in California um so because i've seen that so clown um so we've got some through some of his like uh his manager has been sort of an advisor to heavy grass for a minute so there's there was some connection there as far as like knowing what we were doing and um so clown has always been someone that's used sort of cannabis as a medicine for himself. It's really kind of helped him with kind of get his life in order and kind of calm his demons and kind of bring, and he knew that he wanted to get involved, but he wanted to make sure that he got involved in the right way. And so it just kind of came together. It was like, Hey, you know what, we've been doing this, you know, and we're, we're authentically connecting authenticity. I mean, you know, clown doesn't just put his name on anything. He's like, okay, I'm going to be involved in this. These I really like what these guys are doing. And so we did a collab with him uh, to do clown cannabis. And in that period of time, um, when we first started doing clown cannabis, we couldn't really get clown to do much promotion for us. And it was kind of frustrating. And it's because, he was still living in Iowa and like, you know, Iowa, it's not legal still. Like, so he would tell me stories like, you know, I'd be t- 
like, you know, I, he's like, I lived in constant fear that like, I was going to be like rated and, you know, because like to be made an example of. And so I always had to be careful about how much I really promoted my own consumption. Well, he has since moved to California. And so he's now much more kind of actively and, you know, he doesn't have kind of that same, you know, um, you know, kind of those same concerns, but, but I mean, it also still shows like that we're still, that that's what we're still dealing with because Iowa, half the states still aren't legal, right. You know, recreationally and, and some of them are still pretty harsh um, with, with kind of, you know, how they, they crack down on that stuff. And um, I had Tommy Chong on my other podcast about a year ago, and he obviously got arrested for selling a bong and that was being shipped across the state line. It wasn't even cannabis. It was a bong and they arrested him to make an example of him. Cause obviously he's kind of, you know, Mr. Cannabis. And he did, I think f a year at least in jail, he wrote a book about it called the I Chong. And that was that case in point of just like, Oh, he is a clear drug user and he's big in that culture. Let's nail him and make an example of him. So obviously it does still go on and it's still on their minds. Those people, isn't it? Let's get that guy. Let's tear him down. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, a, so what was, what's been pretty cool is that there are a handful of artists and musicians that have really approached getting into cannabis really the right way um, from an authentic way. And we've been able to kind of tap in and connect with that. And it all kind of came together on this last like leg of the tour. So we've been doing a lot of stuff with Be Real from, from Cypress Hill because he's got a line of dispensaries and he's also got his own um, his own brand called Insane. And during a, a conference out in Palm Springs called uh, Hall of Flowers, at one of his dispensaries, um, there was a panel, and um, there was clown. It was clown. Um, it was Shavo from System of a Down. Um, Shavo has a brand called Twenty Two Red. Um, Be real, and a couple of others, and. It was really just like sort of like a really great like meeting of the minds of and, and it was funny and I don't it probably had nothing to do with it but like not that much longer like uh, after that like Slipknot and Cypress Hill announced that they were going on tour together so um, but uh, but you know it was uh, you know really what I think ended up happening with cannabis is you know, and some of this was really more on the rap side, but even on other, other genres, a lot of artists thought that they could come in and make a quick buck, right? Mm -hmm. It was like kind of the green rush and I'm just going to put, put my name on something and make, and that, that's not the case. It's really hard to make money in cannabis and, and it takes a long time. And, and at the end of the day, audiences see through the BS. Like if, if, if it's obvious that you're just in it to make a buck, then you're not gonna, you're not gonna make it. But like the brands that seem to be rising above are the ones that have this, like they're coming from an authentic, you can't come from a more authentic place than be real. I mean, that guy has been about like, you know, well, it's his name, isn't it? Be real. <laughs> <laughs> it's been about, you know, smoking from, from day one. Um, but um, yeah, so so look, we're we create brands that are that are really kind of focused on lifestyles, and then we'll do collabs, right? Because I don't I don't necessarily believe that people at the end of the day want to like 
smoke cannabis just because their favorite artist is on the cover on the on the package right it's it's you know that helps lend some like credibility to it and i think doing like doing like these collabs and things like that to me that makes more sense um i mean it was funny like we created my agency like this is actually something i don't know if i've even talked about before but like in my last company we did not take on very many like artists and celebrities but the one that we did take on was was shabo and that's because he was such a you could just tell like that he was such a believer in this. And one of the things that we advised him against was like, don't, don't put your name on the packaging. So his, his brand is called 22 red and now they're in multiple States. And it was funny when I ran into him at that event, he's like, he's like, Keith, you know what? Like, I don't even like, I try to get out of the way. Like I want my brand to stand on its own. Like I don't even want it to be seen as Shavo's brand because I want it to be seen as like, this is an incredible, um, um, high quality product. And so I think that what we're starting to see is that, you know, the celebrities and the artists that, that are, that are going to win, you know, with cannabis are the ones that really are in it for the right reasons. And so kind of tying it all back, I do believe that clown is in it for the right reasons. So that's why we got involved with him and, and, um, where it goes from here, we, we, we shall see, you know, we did our, our, our first kind of uh, product run with him. Um, and, you know, as we're starting to take our brands into other States, um, you know, we're going to see kind of what other brands we also bring with us. I love it. It's not just about, uh, as you said earlier, the, the, the aspect of partying is a real strong undercurrent of medicine to, to this plant. And I love that it's, something that should be accessible to everybody because it can totally change people's lives. And uh, I love the approach. I love the blending of the music and the medicine. It's a really cool uh, matchup and it's been, I'm sure we haven't even talked about even 60, 70% of your life, but getting sort of getting to this point right where we are right now just makes complete sense. And I think you're doing really good work with that. And I commend you for that. Thanks a lot, Jesse. Well, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll see you guys out. Are you guys doing any, any, uh, are you guys doing aftershock or anything this year? What are you? I don't know my own schedule. I do know uh, that I'm, <laughs> I'm going on tour with lamb of God come September. Um, and that's a full U S tour. And I think some Canadian dates too, but, uh, off the top of my head, I, I couldn't tell you, I'd have to look on the internet. I've been so busy with other things, but, um, yeah, anytime you want to send a care package to, to Killswitch, we have a ton of guys that would be very appreciative of that. <laughs> yeah, well, we do find that that's sometimes like at the, so we always have care packages at like at the festivals and like there'll be a lot of times like, wait a minute, and I know that guy doesn't smoke. It's like, yeah, he doesn't, but his whole crew does. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, like I said, I'll do, I'll do edibles if I know what I'm getting into. Um, because I do find that they are great for relaxation or creativity, but they, yeah, there's a, there's a couple of guys uh, specific on our crew that I've never seen people consume as much as they have. So yeah, we've got it all over our, our crew and our bus for sure. Uh, in certain States where it's legal. Of course, of course <laughs> only in those States. Yes. <laughs> I'll get um, all the details exchanged through Thomas and, and yeah, we'll keep in touch, man. And, if we ever do a live event West Coast, we'd love to get you down to that as well. It'd be cool to hang out in person and yeah, 
sit around the, the real life campfire and continue the conversation. And if you want to come on again further down the line, when you've got some more stuff going on, you're welcome back anytime, man. This was a really informative and enjoyable talk. So thank yeah, you. I appreciate you guys on. having me on. This was, this was a lot of fun. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 